Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. It's just after four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time. Today, Land and Livelihoods in PNG with Dr Tim Anderson, who's lecturer in political economy at Sydney University. Another side to the champion of the little guy, Don Randall, that is, the late Liberal parliamentarian from Western Australia, and I'll be speaking with Jack Smith, who's from Project Safecom Human Rights Group there. The ALP conference motion on Palestine, that'll be analysed by Professor Bassam Daly from the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network. But let's see if Mr Kevin Healy went to the conference. A week, Jane Lister, when a crowd of ardent, frightening, threatening, vicious terrorists gathered Sunday under the cover of a church. How disrespectful, how perfidious. Not even a mosque, so we would know they're terrorists. No, the Unitarian Church to celebrate terrorism. To hear the evil commie Cuban ambassador talk of revolution, talk of evil treachery like providing doctors for the poor around the world. Obvious commie propaganda. Providing educators. More obvious commie propaganda. Openly, blatantly celebrating commie revolution. July 26th. Boasting, throwing out the US of the UN of the US of the world imposed government and US of caring business class entrepreneurs who had come to bring non-commy Cuba the great benefits of liberty, freedom and democracy, forcing the US of to attempt for 60 years or so to starve them out of their misguided stupor, to help them realise those great benefits like poverty, user pays, bad luck if you can't afford it, health care, bad luck if you can't afford it, education, consumer goods, housing, and sadly we can be pretty certain not one of those terrorists 22 days earlier celebrated the great US of day, the great celebration of the freedom of capital, but on liberty, freedom and democracy, Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Little Billy Shorten Ambition is, is trying to tell us something. Well, what is it, Little Billy? Turn it back, sink it. Turn it back from True Blue Aussie. Uh, uh, Turn what back, little Billy? The Socialist Party's socialist policy. Uh, What's the problem? We haven't seen it for years. That's why it's all at sea. We have to stop it getting here. Turn it around. Sink it. Send it back. Yes, the socialists held their national insomnia talk fest while those terrorists were plotting against True Blue Aussie. They were determining what, determining what is positive, what is good for True Blue Aussie. As we said last week, how they stood and applauded endlessly with massive excitement as if little Billy is a pop star as he entered triumphantly, then endorsed their socialist credentials by agreeing it is in the interests of humanity to sink the boats, or sorry, turn back the boats for the good of the people trying to bludge on our goodness. I commend to this humane, radical, socialist conference this recommendation that we endorse the compassionate policies of the caring business class party. Uh, You mean the Socialist Party? And he interjected at this obvious slip of the tongue. No, I mean the caring business class party. Tiny can't attack us if we agree with everything he says. 
that way we will give the true blue Aussie people an opportunity to make a choice for our exciting policies and our exciting supremo, uh, that's me, without tiny attacking our policies. It's brilliant. Three cheers for operations, sink the boat, sovereign true blue Aussie borders and our brave, fearless train killers confronting these no-proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat-people terrorists so we can enjoy the freedoms our brave train killers have won for us in all those national value-forging invasions and liberations. Just as the vote looked like it might be a touch close, good to see great left numbers supremo, sorry, great left supremo Kimil car subsidies leap to the rescue, guaranteeing little Billy the vote, proving that sinking boats and sending desperates back to the vicissitudes of the open seas is left socialism. Well, Kim, Kim Il has shown just how left of left he is by making his big, big policy, handing the true blue Aussie public purse to all these transnational car companies so they can go on exploiting, or sorry, creating jobs, employing true blue Aussie workers. But just in case Kim Il's support doesn't absolutely convince us that sending desperates back to where they came from, if they make it, is left of left socialist policy and principle, here's the definitive proof. The CFMEU and the MUA, great left-wing unions, joined with right-wing unions to ensure little Billy got the numbers, turning back to sink and drown any chance of Trouble was he accepting those fleeing persecution, including fleeing our very own invasions and their aftermaths. Kimil car subsidies did display his socialist credentials by arguing there was no need to abandon the Socialist Party's socialist objective. It's not like it affects what we do. He posed, th he posed, thumbs injected into the vest of his three-piece suit uniform, looking very important. It hasn't affected our policies for decades. Speaking of Kimmel in his three-piece suit, he's certainly looking very fit and healthy, isn't he? A, a starving socialist. It, it's very encouraging. Despite his celebrations at the left of left victories, probably putting a few more millimetres at least on that false staffian waistline, sensibly those policies were adjusted to the problems socialists face when faced with government. So same-sex marriage gives them a conscience, dear baby Jesus vote, and other vaguely progressive policies will be considered by a socialist government. Renewable energy is a possible target, not locked in. Bit of flexibility. Or as little Billy kept repeating on the news I watched and listened to and read, a short and ambitious socialist government, modest little chap, but we have to consider the policies we told unions and party members we said we'd consider. But we must also consider the impacts on other affected parties like the caring business class, the profiteers, the chambers of profits, and the caring business councils of profits, and the resources profits councils, among others, and, and then balance those interests as socialist governments always balance those interests, balance those considered interests. The local
logic of the week award must go to the Minister for Social Insecurity, Scuttlebem Morlasson, who said the socialist decision to give MPs a conscience, dear baby Jesus, vote on same-sex marriage clearly meant the Caring Business Class Party did not have to give MPs a conscience, dear baby Jesus, vote. An explanation of the logic behind that would have helped, but the dear baby Jesus has spoken to Big Supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses, and we will vote with his conscience and my conscience. Uh, uh, what about the conscience of those who support same-sex marriage? I think you will find when it comes to a vote, if it ever comes to a vote under this government, and our intention is to ensure in the interests of public morals, of public morality, that it does not, but if, then I think you will find 100% of caring business class party members oppose same-sex marriage. Uh, what about tiny sister? We are praying for her. Scuttle them, your Logic of the Week award is on the way. Back to that opponent of government profligacy, Speaker Bronnie Bashup, the Socialist. To one of the numerous revelations about her modest lifestyle, that she took a chauffeured public purse limousine 400 metres to a meeting when there was a shuttle bus provided, she explained she had all this work to do, prompting us to ask, as Speaker, apart from tossing all those socials out of the joint, what exactly is work? And obviously it never struck old Bonnie that she could actually walk the 400 metres back to her luxury suite. Now, a serious, serious complaint. Well, a tragedy, distressing. It's not often we complain about Lord Rupert of Wapping, but a tragedy, listener. Since he pulled the plug on his commuter giveaway MX, presumably because it wasn't making him enough profit from the ads padded out with so-called news, we have not found one item anywhere about his celebrity news staple, Dear Little Paris apart from a big feat. Not a word, not a line. MX was our lifeline to the wonderful, the great humanitarian things Paris was doing with her busy, fulfilling, socially responsible life. Apparently, such items are too low-key for a sophisticated, classy, deep-thinker's journal like the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin. I suggest a campaign. Flood news we need to be told, limited with complaints, threats. Perhaps a bring dear little Paris back rally outside their headquarters, anything to get dear little Paris back in the news. Information on her latest activities to advance the cause of the human race. So get those complaints rolling in, listener, if it's, if it's, it, it, it's so distressing. Finally, another consider for a socialist government arising from the talk fest was the Boothhead tax, named after a US of investor, which would allow the super rich to, dare we say it, pay some tax. Took about 10 seconds, just in case the consider went the wrong way, for Price the Poor Waterhouse of Riches to explain this would be a national and international disaster. Which is better for the economy, it pointed out sensibly. A taxpayer who just pays income tax and spends all their after-tax income sick, grammatically wrong person, but but then anyway, they spent the wrong person there, spends all their after-tax income, or a taxpayer who pays less personal income tax because of funds spent taking commercial risks to create employment and opportunity for 10 other people. 
listener, what better argument for the rich not paying tax? We can be sure little Billy will consider that. Good afternoon. And that was Mr Kevin Healy, and you are listening to Melbourne's community radio station, 3CR. In recent weeks, journalist and researcher Nick McClellan spoke about Melanesia and the Melanesia Spearhead Group. Today, the largest of the Melanesian societies, Papua New Guinea. Dr Tim Anderson is a senior lecturer in political economy at Sydney University and the author of a recently published book, Land and Livelihoods in PNG. Tim, before we talk about the reasons for this work, although PNG is our nearest neighbour, we know very little about the peoples and their culture. It's surprising how little interest or understanding there is of Papua New Guinea in Australia because Australia only really had one colony, one substantial colony, and that was Papua New Guinea. And it's uh, the second biggest country in the region. It's approaching 8 million people these days. And it's got some extraordinary features. I mean, the cultural diversity is amazing. There's over 800 language groups in Papua New Guinea. And then if you include West Papua, there's more than 100 more. So it's got uh, almost 1,000 language groups on on that island. The cultural diversity is incredible. The biodiversity is remarkable. The wealth, the natural resources are, are, are remarkable of the country. There's some beautiful cultures and, and people there, you know, but I think it has a bad reputation because of the, cri- the inequality and the crime, the related inequality and crime in Port Moresby and in the second major city, Ley. But that's really very, very unjustified. So anyway, for whatever reason, uh, the, the biggest of the Pacific Islands is, is very little known. And of course, the, the land issue, that's the big one, isn't it? Yeah, land is a huge issue there because... Papua New Guinea is also unique. It shares to some extent with Vanuatu and the Solomon Islands, three of the biggest Melanesian countries, that the traditional land tenure, the indigenous land tenure, was not destroyed with colonisation. It was only damaged in a very small way. And that's quite unique in the world. You know, the British came and tried to wipe out any sort of uh, indigenous land title in Australia. The Spanish did the same in Latin America. Throughout Africa and Asia... Indigenous land tenure is damaged. It exists in in parts and uh, it's been changed. But in Melanesia, it remains as is. And on top of that, there wasn't ever a feudal system in Papua New Guinea, that is to say, indigenous kings and principalities. So there's no big landholders in Papua New Guinea. The land is quite well distributed, probably the most equal distribution of land amongst clans and families in the world. And that means that most families have access to land and good quality land, an incredible asset really, but that is sort of something more or less a mistake of the colonial era that the the colonial powers didn't really change all that. But they don't normally make mistakes, do they? They must have done it on purpose. It was sort of one of those historical accidents where, you know, the, the colonial powers in Papua New Guinea included Germany, which lost its colonial possessions after the First World War and gave them to Britain. Britain passed them on to Australia, so... There was a certain amount of change, but even the Portuguese in Timor, for example, they were there for over four centuries, but they didn't change that much of the traditional land there, so it does occur in some other places. When did you become both involved and interested in PNG and the land issue? I was there as a young man about 40 years ago in Papua New Guinea, living there for about six months, but then I was asked back about 15 years ago when I was in Timor to come and do a report 
for one of the environmental groups there, Cellcor, on the World Bank and forestry, which was a, a huge issue at the time, still is really. But I decided to ask for a month to, to go around the country and talk to people and see what the main problems they were facing were. And in the rural areas, it was all to do with land. All of these disputes were to do with land, people's land under threat and worried about what was being said to them, promised to them and threatened about, um, about their land. Now, there is multinational involvement in PNG. How does that fit in with the, the land issue? Yeah, that's a very powerful factor, of course. It's in some ways this stereotypical struggle between um, ordinary people on the ground and large companies. But in this case, the ordinary people on the ground have the law on their side if the law is respected. That is to say, the Papua New Guinea Constitution recognises customary land. That is to say, land that's held by tradition but not registered in a, in a government central register. But the, the big company scene is more or less in two areas. One, there's mining, and a lot of the Western companies are involved in that. Australia is sort of a manager of it for investment groups that span the world, you know, from North America to Europe to South Africa. So very, very lucrative mining operations which provide a lot of income and share some income with some local communities to a certain degree. And then you've got a, a large number of largely Malaysian and Chinese companies, mainly Malaysian companies, involved in large uh, monocultures, ag uh, agro-industry like oil palm in particular. It used to be sugar and rubber, but these days mainly oil palm in monocultures. Those monocultures come in the wake of logging, and the logging companies are almost all Malaysian companies, and most of the market is, is East Asia, basically, and China. So the logging companies, followed by monocultures, is the big pressure on land, really the mining to a lesser extent. What about the Australian government and AUSAID? Well, what used to be AUSAID now, whatever the aid arm of foreign affairs is called these days, they abolished AUSAID and they've been rationalising it. But that sort of corporate welfare through aid programs has always encouraged the registration and leasing of land and the idea that a modernist idea that's been around since the late colonial era, really, in Africa that customary landowners had to register their land to be able to, to turn it into a commodity, to turn land from a, an asset that was passed on from generation to generation into a commodity which could be bought and sold. There was some pressure to do that in the colonial period in PNG in the late 50s. It was resisted. It was resisted after independence, but the financial agencies like the World Bank and the Australian Aid Program are still pushing for that in the Pacific Islands in Southeast Asia for that matter too, often in combination with the World Bank and with mining companies also. BHP has been involved in some of these pressures to try and push the registration of land or to argue with communities that they're better off to lease out their land to these big operations or to contribute to the production of oil palm for these um, big uh, monopoly mills. How far and how wide in PNG did you go for your research? The book that um, we're talking about is really based on a lot of existing research plus some new research. And the new research was we did in four provinces, myself and my Papua New Guinea friends that you know I met over the years, and this was about 10 years of research. So the original research was mainly on domestic markets and women roadside sellers, and that was in four provinces. There's about 18 provinces in Papua New Guinea, so we looked at a few different circumstances because, as I said before, you've got 800 different languages. The cultures are quite different. You know, there are matrilineal areas, there are patrilineal areas. There are some cultures that are quite assertive and some that are very 
shy cultures. You know, there's a, there's a range of different um, approaches. And, of course, the products that they make, the fresh fruit and vegetables, for example, which is really the core of the domestic markets in terms of fresh produce, they differ from area to area too, depending on particular export crops that they have and the seasons for particular fruits and so on. So looking at four provinces, we sort of came up with some generalisations that apply to certain communities elsewhere in the country. And what are they? That the domestic markets are very strong. While the government emphasis and the international emphasis is, is usually on corporate development, but also more farmers involved in export crops, so coffee, cocoa, coconut, those sorts of things, there's much more money to be made by, and, and that is being made by the, the small farmers and virtually all rural communities, which is over 80% of Papua New Guinea are small farmers, they've got land much more money to be made in the domestic market. But the domestic markets are more or less ignored, but they are quite vibrant. But how much people make in those markets also then depends on their business strategies and their their marketing strategies and their levels of education and so on. So the main unique concept that we came up with looking at how people were making their livelihoods in rural Papua New Guinea was that this idea of a hybrid livelihood, we found out that, for example, talking to mainly the 95% women that run the domestic markets, was that that was their biggest source of income for most of them. The majority of them got most of their income from those local markets. But they also participated in small business, like chicken farming business, for example, or small stores and things like that. And they also participated in export markets, like growing cocoa, for example. But the income from those export crops was much less in almost all cases than from the domestic markets. And then some families had people um, with employment sometimes, you know. So there was a combination of ways in which those families made their livelihoods. Most of those communities really, because their base of their income was in the ownership of customary land, the economic possibilities for them in moving into the formal sector, that is to say in employment, were much worse. But the formal sector options, you know, sometimes you hear the the Australians say, oh, people, they really need, in Timor or Papua, they really need jobs. Well, yes, that's true, people are looking for jobs in a way, but the formal sector jobs, the wages are really low half or sometimes a third the amount that's being made by women selling um, fresh produce in the markets. So there's a quite a big reversal of the normal common sense things. You know, people often say the informal sector and the subsistence sector is the bottom of the heap and that's why women are there and there's no future in it. It's not the case in Papua New Guinea. There's some quite lucrative economic options in the informal sector and by contrast, the informal sector going and working in a tuna canning factory or a a mining operation or a, um, a small store, the wages are much less. What about the isolation of certain areas in PNG where you know, it's a very mountainous area, there's, there's very few roads and services for people. Do people talk about that? Yes, that's a, that, that's a big issue and there are some communities that are very isolated and indeed not only the isolated areas but the road system is so bad that you haven't got major roads connecting the major cities in Papua New Guinea so even if I want to go around and talk about this book just recently you know last week I had to fly between those major cities and then the flights are delayed and so on so there are big transport problems people have been dealing with that of course in the highlands which it's the most productive area for growing vegetables people have been shipping vegetables right around the edge of the eastern point of Papua New Guinea to the capital where the the prices are much higher. So uh, even, for example, small groups of women in the Eastern Highlands, for example, um, one of whom was helping us with our surveys and a number of people were doing this, they would hire 
space in a bus to ship their vegetables down to Lay, the, the closest city they can access by a good road, then these women, and remember they're not highly educated women, the women in the village basically, would hire a refrigerated shipping container to ship those vegetables the quite long trip around the east point of PNG to Port Moresby, get their aunties to pick up the vegetables at the wharf there, take them to markets and so on. So even though logistically it was very difficult, people are actually doing this and, and making some money out of it. But transport, you're right, it's a mountainous country. The links between the major cities are a big problem. They add a lot of costs, and of course that's you know the government responsibility to do some better infrastructure with all the mining income that they've got. But there are communities also that are very isolated up in the mountains. Sometimes, for example, they carry bags of cocoa and on their backs, you know, many kilometres to get it down to a, a road or to a, a shipping port, for example. What about river transport? That exists in some areas, like in the Sepik, for example. There is some of that going on. It's a combination of things in Papua New Guinea that makes Papua New Guinea very interesting that way, economically as much as anything else. For example, there's a very lucrative trade in betel nuts, which is addictive, of course. It's a type of drug, you know, it can destroy your teeth with the other additives people put with it too, but it's really a very popular drug, betel nut. Lots of people, including, you know, middle-class people, well-educated people, chew it. There's a futures market going on in it, and what happens is, because it grows on the coastal areas, not in the highlands, but in the highlands, there's a lot of very good business people who are bring betel up from the coast, they will ring ahead to the CPIC, for example, to uh, a family group down there who's controlling betel nut and make their order and send the money through telegraphically to a bank account and then send the trucks down to go and pick that up. On the CPIC side of things, they will ship the, the betel nut across the river to Bogia, to the northern part of Medang, and where the trucks can come and pick it up. So there's really a futures market with some advanced sort of commercial operations going on there in something which is, you know, a very organic sort of earthy type of fresh production. So there's a combination of the, the old and the new and these sorts of things. And another thing that we argue in the book is that there isn't a, a westernised, modernist version of people moving out of the informal sector into the formal sector or from subsistence to the cash economy, as is often said in, in some of the aid literature and banks literature, because people are living in those, both those worlds at the same time. In other words, there, there are women sitting down by the side of the road selling oranges or whatever it is, and on their mobile phones, you know, arranging what's happening with their chicken business or, or some other thing like that. So those two sorts of economies are, are working side by side and have been for, for a number of decades. How much land has been used now for palm oil production? And just thinking about the ecological and impacts of that on the people and, and the environment. Relatively small compared to, say, Malaysia and Indonesia. Is it growing? It's growing, but it's growing slowly because the barrier, the obstacle, as they say, is the fact that ordinary people own their own land and it's not very popular. They offer loans of, say, 10,000 kina, about $5,000 for people to develop oil palm on their own land and then sell it into the company and the company fix the prices, of course. So, And there are some areas where that's happening, usually where they've got converted previous plantations that was alienated land in the um, in the colonial era but it's very small it's it's something like less than three percent of the, of the land mass there so they've been trying to promote it but it hasn't you know the the leasing of land or the the giving over of a smallholder land to, to feed these operations it hasn't worked or it's only worked in a very limited way and the people that have done it have really regretted it a lot of them have regretted it a lot later on the biggest 
recent operation is something called, it's really a corrupt system, it's called special agricultural business leases. And this is where elements within the government, it's been found to be illegal, they had an inquiry, the government has sort of failed to properly act on the inquiry so far, but that has purportedly alienated something, several million hectares of land without consulting the the families that actually own their land. And as I said, traditional ownership is recognised in PNG law, so they can't just do that legally in the same way that, say, the Indonesian government can do in West Papua. Because in West Papua, although there are very similar traditions, there isn't the legal basis for recognition of Indigenous land. And furthermore, there's a very strong state and a strong army which can come in and simply push people off their off their traditional land. In PNG, the institutional setup is, is quite different. So oil palms going ahead much faster in West Papua, for example. Uh, the whole of Indonesia, really, a lot of the... Of course, there's indigenous land in Indonesia too, but as I said, it, it's not respected by Indonesian law generally. Therefore, the, the extent of monocultures in PNG is much, much less. The companies see that as an opportunity, of course, and they keep applying this sort of pressure through banks and mining companies and, and aid programs. How strong is the push to change the land tenure system now? It's been fairly constant, and one of the things that's strengthened it in recent times is that it was really taken up by the PNG government. In other words, the PNG government has taken over the role that was really resented that was being run by the World Bank with mining companies and the Australian government. So in other words, the foreign agents and the banks have, have, have moved back to the background because there was a lot of resistance and you know, it was seen as foreign imposition. And now the PNG elites have been running it themselves, mainly, of course, with help behind the scenes from Australia and, um, and the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank, uh, the financial agencies. Is there a smell of corruption there? There's a lot of corruption there. I mean, in the last 10 years, really, since 2005, when they had a task force, and you've got now intellectual Papua New Guineans putting out papers saying the productive individual in Papua New Guinea is one that appropriates you know, the individual profits of the community land from the community. I'm saying it very bluntly in that sort of way. It's a very antisocial thing in, in traditional law terms, of course. Uh, indeed, it's probably a criminal thing to talk about it in those sorts of ways, but there's, a, there's quite a confrontation, a cultural confrontation going on with this idea of just keeping that pressure up on families to try and trick them really into agreeing to one way or the other into alienating their land. Well, what support are the, the rural people getting to fight back this push? They've even relatively uneducated people and so the big problems that they face, I mean, the advantage they've got is they've got good land, they've got pretty good food security and housing and social support and employment, cultural reproduction and so on, but really lacking in decent infrastructure, roads and um, access to schools and health services. There are virtually no doctors in, in rural Papua New Guinea, for example. So you've got millions of people without access to proper health services and therefore you've got lots of serious diseases uh, that are still rampant there. For example, while Timor has, is on the point of getting rid of malaria in East Timor just in the last few years, but of course malaria and tuberculosis are, are still rampant in CNGs. Nevertheless, despite the fact that they've got all those sorts of problems, there is a sense that people do value their land and they it's culturally offensive to them, the idea of their land disappearing because that would be disinheriting their children and their grandchildren. They know that it's the basis of livelihoods. But nevertheless, because there's a lot of trickery and because ordinary simple people take people at face value, you 
know, when a company or a government official says, you start growing oil palm for the, the company down the road, you're going to have a good house and a car and all these sorts of benefits. They believe those sorts of things, basically. Someone in a suit who speaks well, they think that an educated person must be knowledgeable and honest and, you know, to be trusted, basically. And so that, that's the sort of interface where a lot of problems happen because um, culturally they don't take at face value that well-educated people can be frauds and liars and want to rob them of their land, basically. This sounds a bit like with Aboriginal people in Australia with the mining companies coming in and saying, you give up your land and you'll be able to have education and health care, things that the government should be providing anyway. Exactly, yeah. There's been a little bit of a move in recent times, just in the last two years in PNG, to, to actually extend, you know, to remove the fees from schools, um, which had been a huge barrier and one of the reasons why families were rural families were desperately trying to make more cash to send their kids to school. They really wanted to send their kids to school. But unfortunately, they've made it into a business. You know, they've, done, they've gone down the Chilean route where you, the government throws money around to anyone who wants to run a school and therefore it's full of frauds, you know, like phantom schools, phantom students, money going west. It's in the headlines there, but, you know, 50 million has just sort of disappeared into some phantom school. So... It's been a big fiasco because, unfortunately, the the PNG elite has picked up a lot. You know, a lot of the worst aspects of our culture in terms of commercialising everything. Everything's got a money value on it in our society, and these are the sort of values we promote. That's at the root of the um, of the corruption, basically, in a lot of uh, Pacific Island countries. That this sort of idea of privatisation and commercialising everything it has a different impact too on on cultures that are very dependent on traditional systems you know it's very corrosive of the the good aspects of those systems so tim who do you want to read this book it's an academic book basically and but its aim of it was to look at what were the best economic options for rural families in png so it's mainly for those rural families at the moment though because only a small percentage of those people read english or read well we're doing a talk version of it you know the, the creole of english that's most common in png an illustrated, top-pitched simplified version of it to get to them. It's mainly to inform those, or in the first instance, to inform those families about what their options are and, and also to learn from each other because there isn't a lot of exchange of information about the best livelihood opportunities between those families because all of the government services have been focused on supporting exports and, and, and the formal economy. So it's for them in the first instance, but then also for people who are interested in NGOs and academia and so on about the, the realities, the economic realities of those sorts of families. Surely the, the conclusions that you reach are there to sustain the people in keeping what they've got. That's right. And so um, if I talk about it in Australia, there's a very different conversation here about what customary land means in Papua New Guinea and most people don't really understand it. Even Indigenous land in Australia is quite different because it was taken and it's coming back in a different sort of legalised form, you know, so it's not even the same as Indigenous land in Australia. So there's one conversation here. In PNG it's a different context. In a sense, most people there, whatever level of education, already more or less understand what I'm saying. But all I'm doing there is a bit of a cross-cultural language thing, is giving them economic tools, I suppose, to reinforce their arguments with these pressures that keep coming on them and and also to to some extent to to seed some ideas about... Because we came across some communities that have taken some initiative for their families' livelihoods, some successful ones, 
and a lot of people don't know about those sorts of things. That that sort of information is not being shared. So it's a cross-cultural exercise, and in PNG, it's mainly giving people some tools, some resources, which to engage in these in these modernist economic arguments. Would it be true to say that the, if they get to change these land laws, that the the biggest loser will be the women? Yeah, well, that's interesting because whether it's patrilineal or matrilineal, most of PNG's patrilineal areas, of course, in the matrilineal areas like Bougainville and East Cape and so on, women have a bigger say traditionally in the way the land's used, not to say that they, they run everything, but they have a, a much stronger say in, in land. Uh, when it comes to a business dealing, they get squeezed out often, you know, to a very large degree. And there's been a, a modernist argument from people I call the land modernisers goes back to the 50s really to say that look in these traditional societies which are dominated by men women are secondary landholders and they're discriminated against in traditional systems therefore introduce a modernist system and you'll remove the discrimination but one of the factors and one of the things we, we did look at in the book is precisely those sorts of modernist schemes and there's a long history that goes back to East Africa too there's no evidence that women are better off by the formalisation of those traditional schemes because while they may be second class in a sense in those traditional schemes, they're included in that, in that way, whereas in a, in a formal system, they found, for example, in Kenya, some of the analysts after there'd been a lot of land registration in Kenya, that the women were excluded in the formal systems much more comprehensively than had happened in the traditional systems. I think there's, so that's an important point because I think there's a common understanding that tradition discriminates against women, but there isn't a recognition of the way in which modernist systems can be far more devastating and, and effectively excluding women. For example, if a business operation arises to do with land and some monoculture, whether it's a matrilineal system or a patrilineal system, the men will jump in and register themselves as the controllers or owners of that land at that time and the women will be, will be excluded much more comprehensively, whereas in a patrilineal system, usually it's the women working the land and therefore engaged in these domestic markets I've been talking about, and they'll be the ones that will be introducing their sons to the land, the sons to the land that they're going to manage when they grow up, and so really the women have the knowledge and are engaged with and in every way with the, the land, even though it's a patrilineal system. I think that's something that's not very well understood in Western circles. And you've been listening to Dr. Tim Anderson from Sydney University speaking about his book, and it's called Land and Livelihoods in PNG. I think you'd get it on the net. Um, talking about the, the years he's been in and out of PNG, working with the, the people there and understanding the, the myriad of cultures that makes up PNG. This is the moment. The fifth annual Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair will bring together an exciting range of independent booksellers, zinesters, and activist groups. The book fair showcases more than 40 stalls and a program of workshops. Come along to celebrate books, pamphlets, and zines, including radical fiction, the anarchist classics, and cutting edge radical writers from around the world. It's a great opportunity to be introduced to new ideas, to challenge your thinking, and to network with like-minded folks. It's free, and we also provide free childcare. It's all happening at the Abbotsford Convent on Saturday, August 8th, from 10am till 6pm, and with an after-party in a squatted space late into the night. Find out more at www.abbotsford.org.au. 
www.amelbournebookfair.org or find us on Facebook. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair, because another world is possible. The Anarchist Book Fair is a 3CR supporter. Don Randall, the member for the Western Australian seat of Canning, died suddenly earlier this month. Tributes poured in for the, quote, champion of the little guy, unquote. But Western Australian human rights activist Jack Smith also remembers Don Randall, but not with the same fondness. And we'll hear more about Don Randall later. But first, Jack, TV tonight at 8.30. Yeah, well, I don't want to feed your competitors, but it's a general interest issue. Tonight, the first of three episodes of the annual run now on SBS of the series Go Back to Where You Came From. I was just reminiscing about how painful it still is to watch this stuff. And you don't get used to it. You may think you're a very experienced refugee advocate, but you don't get used to the bastardry and the horror um, issues and the the blatant racism and xenophobia on display on uh, SPS. It's funny how the world works, because just last week I had a three-hour conversation on Facebook with a new Facebook friend who's one of the girls in that series. And I discovered that her kind of covert name on Facebook was the name of Nicole Judge, who was also a whistleblower who testified to Senate inquiries. And she will be uh, on the show tonight. Opposing a very xenophobic and loud-mouthed racist woman with fake blonde hair, so people who watch it tonight will recognize what I'm saying tonight. But it's it's horrendous to see this at work, this juxtaposing of experience and decency in having worked with refugees on Menace and Nauru, like Nicole has, and a totally ignorant, know-it-all Australian racist woman. You can't say it less blunt than that. This is blatant racism and xenophobia at work. No, I'm not looking forward to it, and I will also have to watch it. They cannot not watch it. So there's the dilemma for the day. I saw the figure, I think it was the other day, of the number of refugees that have been accepted into Greece, not necessarily stayed there, but given succour and yep. given 100,000. Yeah, I know. One we the... should bow our heads in shame in this country because if we actually, actually want to the data into our face. Then we look at Italy and Greece and the entry to Europe, the entry by boat to Europe, and we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. And, you know, I said this six, seven years ago already when it was the annual statistics of um, UNHR that uh, Germany, for instance, processes 80,000 refugees a year. And when 500 people are on one boat, all of the country screams here in Australia. You know, it is disgusting what we're doing. It's the leftover of the white Australia policy and the leftover of a very, very racist intent in the white establishment of Australia. You're talking about six or seven years ago. Let's go back to 2008. Mm. And what happened in Parliament? In a parliamentary committee? Well, I said, when we were discussing this before the show, I 
I said to you, look, let's let's just look at, uh, you know, how things have evolved, if like if you like, in refugee advocacy land in Australia. In 2001, Tampa happened. In 2002, I started full-time after already having taught my TAFE students in 1999 in fictional projects about how to respond to uh, asylum seeker influx by boat. So I was well primed by 2002 when I set up Project Safecom. But in those days, people were impressed. I had a good name. I was one of the frontline characters around the nation addressing this issue on radio and TV and in emails and letters and phone calls to Parliament House. And in those days, um, on one occasion, um, a liberal backbencher spoke up in the House of Reps and said people have to note two articles that were written this week in an online magazine called New Matilda. And one of them is by Julian Burnside, QC, and the other one is by Jack Smith from Project Safe Common Origin. There's the credit. I was quoted in the Parliament. And then there was another, it was a Democrat senator, not Nick Sherry, who's now gone from Parliament, but it, it was, I don't know, I forgot his name, but I um, climbed into my email and wrote a furious email about one of the latest atrocities committed by the Conservative government at the time, and he had his um, he had his response to that issue, and had a 15-minute-long speech in which he quoted my entire email in full in the in in the Senate. So there was access there when 2005, 2006 came around, and Judy Moreland and Petro Giorgio, after six years, I must say, after six years, finally finally spoke up and demanded the kids to be released from detention. They were busy with their private members bill and they had a major caucus meeting and they both rang me on the same day after the caucus meeting. Unsolicited phone calls to me in origin from camera and they both briefed me about what happened in caucus. They briefed me about a caucus meeting without me having asked them to do so. So these kind of interplays with parliamentary dissenters put you at the forefront of being part of a national network. And that really helped me to keep motivated in doing the work. And for a long time, I did press releases and Half an hour later, there would be a press release from the Democrats, Andrew Bartlett. And another 20 minutes later, there would be a press release from Kerry Nettle for the Greens, who was the immigration spokesman in the Senate for the Greens. So we worked in tandem with the three of us about major issues developing in those days. So by the time, what was it, 2007 or 8 that you mentioned, there was a hearing um, in a some some kind of Senate inquiry into the Immigration Detention Network, and they did hearings around the country. And I got an unsolicited phone call from the secretary of the inquiry from the Department of Parliamentary Services, and she invited me to do a submission, and I planned to not do a submission at all. So I thought, okay, all right, I'll do a submission, and I'll appear 
in the Perth hearing. So in the Perth hearings, I constructed a speech, which I wrote out before I came in, the gist of which, which was to look at all the racism and the brazen reconstructions, the lies to the Australian people in rhetoric by politicians. And the bottom line of my speech was, no, it is you who created the lie around the country. You, the politicians, created the horrors that we now see embodied in the treatment of asylum seekers. You created a racism that misinforms half of the country, three quarters of the country, about the rights of refugees and asylum seekers, about the fact that they're illegal, but they're not. You created the lies that are being perpetuated. You created the scams of public information. And only you need to be pointed at as the perpetrator of that evil, and you need to put instruments in place to, uh, to correct your own heinous errors, mistakes, and lies to the Australian people. And, you know, I rattled it off at great speed, because every time I said something controversial, the, the chair of the inquiry reminded me that there was a time limit to what I had to say. So, yes, I'm getting there, so I talked a bit faster, because I knew all this would appear in the hands art in exactly the way I had spoken it as part of the procedure and that appears in Hansard. So here's Don Randall, who died two weeks ago, or last week, and the next morning I thought, yeah, I remember you, Don Randall, because there was a, he was a vice chair, I think, of the inquiry. He was there as well, sitting at the important people's table in that inquiry and hearing in Perth. And uh, then I discovered a day later he was doing whatever he could to get my speech struck out from the Hansard. And I thought by myself, well, Don Randall, for the rest of my life, I will remember you because you had the heinous scheming deliberately behind closed doors to get my record of the Hansard struck out because it was untoward. He didn't get anywhere. He lost that fight. But he did whatever he could to get it struck out because it was... I directly accused politicians, on, mainly on the conservative side, but also in the, in the Labour side, because Kevin Rudd was in government at the time, of deliberately lying to the Australian people so they could get their um, disgusting political agenda dominating the landscape. I accused politicians directly, so he wants to strike it, strike it out from the hands of and then I thought myself, yeah, well, where am I now? Where where are we now as a as a advocacy movement? And we've lost so much ground because you can't get anywhere with politicians. You know, the last time I talked to Tanya Plibersek, who returned the phone call I'd put out to her, was about four years ago. And when it became too hot for her, she slammed the phone on. She hung up on me. That's labor. You know, so I have now almost zero influence. Perhaps on the other side, I can, I can also highlight a positive side. We've just, I've just been negotiating, or Labor for Refugees in Queensland has just been negotiating to get me over and do a speaking engagement for them about my, my research and about my insights into this area. So 
I'm now, and I'm still with my newsletter as well, which you know about, by weekly newsletter I put out by email. I guess I feed stuff to other advocates who then get, go to work with it. So I, there is still a role, but in terms of influencing Parliament, it really is very little now. Labour has made up its mind, we're going to do it like this. You saw it on the weekend. Labour left and Labour for Refugees had considerable numbers to defeat the plans by Labour, uh, the shortened Labour, to uh, turn back boats and fold in with the government about that. And the speeches we saw in the Labour Party conference were good from, from that movement, from that group. But then you also see the right wing factions of Labour, which are now dominated the leadership, Shorten and Burke and Bowen and Miles and Thistle, Swate and some others, they're all in their same faction. And they basically ran around behind closed doors bullying the hell out of those dissenters in the Labour Party. And they, you know, did whatever they could to swing the opinion of union delegates to fold in behind them and save the face of Bill Shorten. And they did their deals, and so they won, they won that moment um, and defeated the left. And I think we said, yeah, well, you know, the left is not very left at the best time in the Labour Party, but the right is always right. And we've seen that at work at the Labour conference. The right is always right, um, and the right dominates the front bench of the Labour Party in Canberra. I can give it to them. They're a lot better, and there's a lot more covert and expressed and really well-intentioned humanity on the part of Labour. And I can't see any humanity in the conservative side of politics in Australia. They are just disgusting schemers, and, and they prefer torturing people because that's what they think the electorate wants. Labour is a lot more decent, but you still see the the game playing at, at work. And so I have zero influence in the Labour Party. I have zero influence in the Conservative side of politics these days. And it's very different than 12, 14 years ago. Just listening to Al Gore last night, the topic he was speaking about was the environment. But uh-huh. you could put this through to asylum seekers and our policies as well. He was saying Australia, words to the effect of Australia used to be looked up to but not anymore. Yep, that's right, exactly. There is a new uh, movement going on in Labour, and it's not just in the left. There is something new happening, very hesitantly and very afraid still. There is a new consciousness developing in Labour as well. And one of the little signs that no journalist has mentioned is that, you know, when Labour has a national conference it's always big celebrations song and dance and puha and good rhetoric and then they parade all their brave heroes from the past you know Gough Whitlam Bob Hawke Paul Keating and so on guess what they were all invisible people there was no Julia Gillard there was no Kevin Rudd there was no Paul Keating there was no Bob Hawke Um, I didn't see Bob Carr I didn't see John Faulkner the whole older generation has been quietly told, I think, to stay away because Shorten wants to have the new generation do the bidding. 
which is fine, which is fair enough, but it's striking because this is the first time in decades that the old parade of old and hero, labor heroes did not take place during a national party conference. That's remarkable. And so there is, there is good things developing in Australia, even in labor. Um, but it's small, it's hesitant, and it's only a beginning. And it remains to be seen how much is, real, is left if Shorten wins the election and we have a Labour government. I've got good hope that some of it will survive, but not everything. Just another reminder of the programme tonight, Jack. All right, 8.30, SBS. Go back to you where you came from. It's the first one-hour episode of three episodes. Prepare yourself, get your popcorn out, have your glass of wine there, but be warned because you may want another glass and another glass of wine to dull the agonizing pain that you're going to witness if you're alive and well on the inside about the issues of asylum seekers. Well, I'd say congratulations to SBS for continuing to do this program. I think so too, yeah. I think so too. Brave man is Dave Corlett, who is a long-term friend who did his PhD with Robert Mann at La Trobe University and now has become an independent consultant, making that program every year again with SBS. And this is the most reality TV show you can have about the journey of refugees, so it's well worth watching. Not the sort you're going to get on Channel 7 or Channel 9? No, definitely not. This is really the best we can get in this country. Thanks, Jack. Thank you. Take care. And that's Jack Smith, who founded Project Safecom in Narragin, Western Australia, which is southeast of Perth, back in 2001, I think he said. Yeah, 2001-2002. And he's been working tirelessly ever since. Talking about the program tonight, go back to where you come from, 8.30 tonight on SBS. At 17 seconds after 8.15, on the clear bright morning of August 6, 1945, an atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, Japan. August 6 and 9 mark 70 years since the U.S. atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which claimed more than 200,000 lives. Join the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, ICANN, for Australia's first ever screening of the extraordinary 1953 film Hiroshima. Thursday, August 6 at 6.30, Collide Theatre, Melbourne. Bookings at icanw.org.au. Proceeds support ICANN's work to ban and eliminate the 15,000 nuclear weapons that exist in the world today. ICANN is a 3CR supporter. Politicians and mainstream media are fueling anti-Muslim hate. Attacks on Muslims are increasing and the fear is causing some women to restrict their movements. Worse, an anti-Muslim political party is launching in October. It's time for people who oppose bigotry to organise. Stand up and speak out against Islamophobia. Sign the statement at www.voicesagainstbigotry.org and ask others to do the same. Don't be a bystander. Voices Against Bigotry is a 3CR supporter. This is the move. This is the move. Miraculous activist activity. Imagine this activist activity. 
The fifth annual Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair will bring together an exciting range of independent booksellers, zinesters, and activist groups. The book fair showcases more than 40 stalls and a program of workshops. Come along to celebrate books, pamphlets, and zines, including radical fiction, the anarchist classics, and cutting-edge radical writers from around the world. It's a great opportunity to be introduced to new ideas, to challenge your thinking, and to network with like-minded folks. It's free, and we also provide free childcare. It's all happening at the Abbotsford Convent on Saturday, August 8th, from 10am till 6pm, and with an after-party in a squatted space late into the night. Find out more at www.amelbournebookfair.org or find us on Facebook. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair, because another world is possible. The Anarchist Book Fair is a 3CR supporter. Professor Basim Daly from the University of Adelaide is a member of APAN, the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network. Following the ALP conference here in Melbourne at the weekend, the network acknowledged that the motion passed on Palestine was progress, but more needs to be done. When I spoke with Bassam yesterday, I asked him first what was the state of the ALP position on Palestine prior to the conference, when it was under the, the leadership of Gillard, who was an enthusiastic supporter of Israel. That's right. I mean, um, there is what's called a policy framework. It's quite a succinct uh, sort of policy, and actually the current resolution uh, starts with it. And if you look at it, it only talks about the aspiration of the Palestinians. It doesn't talk about their rights. It doesn't describe what the problem is there and what the solution is likely to be. So simply it says that we want Israel to have all of these things. We sort of recognize the aspiration of the Palestinians rather than, you know, be a little bit more forthcoming of what they will do and uh, what they stand on different things which Israel is doing to the Palestinians. What were the different speakers saying at the conference? There wasn't sort of a lengthy debate. It was just a motion. What I understand uh, from those inside, that uh, there has been a three days of continuous discussion and uh, mediation between uh, the left and the right, mostly actually between the right in New South Wales and the right in Victoria. They were trying to reach some sort of compromise, if you want, and eventually uh, they couldn't reach a compromise, and at 3 o'clock in the morning, they uh, each went and uh, put their motions out. It ended up as a matter of uh, who can find the numbers, basically. And why did it end up as the the right of New South Wales and the right in in Victoria rather than maybe a left faction? So the left was supporting of the motion on a lot of aspects of it. You may know that um, more than 100 sub-branches of the Labour Party around the country have passed a motion and sent it to the conference. And this motion has the four demands that we asked for and or we sort of somehow endorsed, if you want. And that's the recognition, ending of the occupation, the settlements issue and the refugees issue. This was the base by which sort of most of the resolution was based on. And so the, the left was supportive. Right in New South Wales and with the leadership of Bob Carr and Tony Burke and wanted obviously to support it. And those in Victoria were, I presume, Bill Shorten is and, and a stronger support for Israel exists did not want uh, this to happen in a way, and they were more sort of arguing the uh, Israeli side, if you want. Eventually what happened is, uh, I guess, uh, five minutes to midnight, if you want, even on the floor of the conference, 
a compromise between both sides was found and a motion was passed uh, which uh, was adopted unanimously between all attendees. It was passed by, uh, suggested by uh, Tony Burke and it was seconded by Wendy Turner from uh, Queensland who is an executive member of APAN. Was BDS discussed? BDS was not discussed. There is a one-liner in the uh, resolution where it says that uh, this conference uh, rejects the Boko divestment and sanctions campaign against Israel full stop. Now, that's nothing new in here in terms of the Labour Party's uh, position on PDS. It wasn't a point that was sort of, I guess, expected. We knew that uh, this is uh, something that they violently opposed to. Even Bob Carr and others have not supported BDS. But uh, for those who advocate for it uh, among uh, our members and community, uh, that's not going to deter them in a way, in any shape or form. The Labour Party have the right to have their own position, but uh, this is a consumer affair, a consumer sort of choice aspect. So this is uh, NGOs and community groups who have every right to exercise their, I guess, right to you know, not buy Israeli products or attend uh, any cultural issues in a way that related to Palestine. So um, I'm not sure this will have any impact on the uh, uh, PDS campaign. And in, if anything, actually, what I'm reading in social media is people are even determined more to do PDS because of that. What was the role of Michael Danby and Mark Dreyfus over that weekend? <laughs> I guess this is... Uh, uh, easy one to answer. Obviously, they were uh, vehemently uh, in uh, opposition to anything that will criticize Israel or move labor from its current position because they were happy with where, where they were, by which it's very ambiguous, in which um, it basically doesn't talk about any rights for the Palestinians and basically ignore the issues altogether. The point here is that uh, the, this motion has basically signaled the shift in the ALP culture. And we were pleased not with the motion itself, but with the groundswell among the uh, labor movement collectively that the issue of Palestine can no longer be ignored and that the labor position cannot be just a copy of the liberals. And so for the first time in, in my understanding that there is a real difference between the labor and the liberal when it comes to the issue of Palestine, and we, the supporters of Palestine, are making every effort to maintain this difference and to uh, urge labor to move in the right direction. And really what I was telling others that it's uh, what Labour did is simply took a, a, a one step closer to what the international consensus is. It's not such a radical move, what they said. I mean, the rest of the world uh, regards settlements are illegal. Barack Obama in 2011 said that 1967 is the base for a um, future Palestinian state. Uh, there's uh, resolutions 191 which talks about the right of return and the, uh, for the Palestinian refugees. So all these aspects have been in the public arena, in international forums uh, many years before, except that uh, both uh, major political parties have been under the hegemony of a strong and rich lobby here in Australia, and that's why their policy almost used to be identical policies when it comes to the Israel-Palestine 
uh, has been the way it was. And we are hoping that uh, this motion will strengthen the hand of those within the labor movement who are supportive of Palestine to take it and uh, move forward with it uh, and basically improve such that, you know, uh, they'll be effective supporters of uh, future Palestinian states. I'd imagine a lot of work and angst has gone into preparing for this conference by supporters of Palestine, and I'd imagine similar work by the pro-Zionist lobby. It has been uh, a, uh, an intense uh, almost uh, year and a half, I have to say. You may recall that there were also motions passed, much stronger motions passed in uh, New South Wales uh, Labour Conference, in Queensland Labour Conference, South Australian Labour Conference. I think uh, there's another one from Tasmania. I think Young Labour passed another motion similar to this. So these were preparatory work, if you want, uh, for the National Conference. So the, this work uh, happened over the last year and a half or so. Uh, and uh, obviously before uh, this national conference, there was a lot of uh, discussions and debates. Uh, we obviously are not members of the Labour Party. We are external to any political party for that matter. We have been uh, consulting with those within the movement, uh, providing them with our views and our advice on what would be useful for a Palestinian cause. And I have to say uh, something important in here about this motion uh, is that uh, it's not sort of everything we wanted. It's not a perfect motion. And when Tony Peck stood up to actually introduce it, he said, this motion will please no one. In other words, it, it's a compromise motion that will give each side something at least. And for us, we felt that uh, there is some good elements that puts in writing positions, for example, that Pop Carr took in the past, that a current uh, sort of shadow foreign minister says, well, it's not in our policy in a way. Well, now it is in the policy that settlements are illegal. It is in the policy that 1967 is the base of negotiation. It is in the policy that international framework now is the base of uh, solving the problem. It is in the policy now that uh, we need an end date for the occupation. Uh, all of these things actually give us some hope that we're moving in the right direction. I mean, I may just do a prediction is that maybe a future Labour government would actually recognize Palestine, considering the shift that's happening internationally as well. But uh, I'm, I may be too optimistic about that. But there's a couple of issues that I'd like to actually mention as well, is that the motion did fail to mention the siege of Gaza and the plight of the 1.4 million inhabitants living in the largest prison in the world. And this is, was a real big omission uh, from, from the resolutions. Also, I uh, failed to mention the settler violence and the brutal occupation uh, and, and the modern-day apartheid, which is actually happening in the West Bank uh, as we speak. Some of the wordings in the motions weren't, uh, weren't I mean, perfect. They say that uh, the settlements may undermine the two-state and our outlook. I mean, it's not may. The rest of the world has already recognized that settlements is a major issue. Americans, the Europeans, the rest of the world have recognized settlements are an issue. And Australia, it's not may. It's actually we know that they are. And also there's no mention of the Palestinian refugees in Syria and Iraq and Lebanon. I mean, uh, some of these people have been displaced multiple times. The UN now doesn't recognize them if they move to another country as refugees as such, and that is a major, major problem. 100,000 people in Yarmouk um, have been displaced in Syria, and, and uh, there's nowhere for them to go in a way. So there's some uh, missing elements in the motion, but uh, I think in general we're feeling that um, it, it is um, 
uh, a move in the right direction. It's something that uh, we're not celebrating, but we're thinking that uh, this is um, something positive that's going to take us a step closer to um, a much better policy. And one last point about this is that uh, we, we feel that uh, as Labour shifts its position, it may actually trigger some shift in other parties' position and stronger position. So um, it's uh, one small step in a, in a long journey. And what does an actual position here in Australia mean for the Palestinians? The motion of the, in the Labour Party will not liberate Palestine. But uh, as I mentioned before, Palestinians have given up on uh, the idea that peace talks will uh, result in a solution and uh, in, in peace and freedom. They have uh, adopted the uh, international framework approach. They want uh, the uh, rest of the world to basically put an end date to the occupation and enforce it through the Security Council. They're feeling that you know this ongoing negotiations is not uh, going to be the way to solve it, especially with the asymmetry in power between Israel and the Palestinians. Anything on the international arena is a step uh, is, it will help the Palestinians to achieve their dream of uh, freedom and independence. Uh, I'll give you a simple example. Uh, uh, only last Thursday, there was a, a motion in the UN that um, voting to include the UN in the Economic and Cultural uh, Association, or some, something along these lines. 42 countries voted to support uh, the Palestinian resolution, and two countries voted against, and that's the US and Australia. We are not simply a uh, sort of uh, sitting on the side doing nothing. We are active participants in stopping the Palestinians reaching their goals of independence and freedom. And hence, any move here within policy is going to help strengthen the Palestinian position internationally, and they will hopefully edge him closer to, uh, to freedom. That's their only hope, really, is through the international framework that they get their rights because they don't have military power, they have tried violence, and they've been killed by by the thousands. Um, These dishonest uh, brokers, being the U.S. and the Quartet, have not uh, helped them achieve their aspirations, and they want the international community to impose sanctions on Israel to actually force it to comply with existing resolutions and to basically give them their freedom. And where does BDS stand at the moment? Palestinian support groups all around the the world are very encouraged by the uh, progress of BDS and how it's being uh, adopted uh, quite uh, at a high rate, really, all around the world. I mean, people do some comparisons between uh, the adaptation of BDS for Palestine as compared to South Africa. They say that we sort of 20 years ahead of where South Africa was. In other words, what happened in a relatively short period, it took much, much longer uh, for South Africa. There's lots of winds coming right and left. I mean, uh, it's clear signals from Israel and Israeli leaders showing that they're panicking and that this is going to have a major impact to them. The European Union is moving to ban uh, settlement products being imported into uh, Europe. We're really hoping that Australia apply its own uh, rules here, its own existing legislation and it does what we call truth in labeling in that uh, it uh, stops settlement products and labels them as such in a way. The movement in Australia is growing. 
patchy in a way. Uh, the people here in uh, in South Australia are doing a fantastic job. They they now have the longest protest uh, in history, in a way, being every week in Random Mall protesting against the selling of uh, uh, products from Israel. There's also a cultural boycott movement happening. Uh, I've attended a conference in France where the Europeans all gathered, and there was around 3,000 of them for a full-day uh, uh, BDS uh, gathering, if you want. And uh, there the movement is growing further and further. It is slow, but it's, it's certainly happening. Awareness is, is being increased. You live in hope that uh, this pressure is going to send uh, a message to the Israelis and eventually to the uh, international governments that uh, we don't tolerate what Israel is doing and that the occupation has to end. Israel currently does not pay a price for its occupation and, and the brutal uh, control of the Palestinians. And uh, it has to be a price. If we rely on the, these governments that can uh, uh, bought and uh, buy uh, strong lobbies, we're not going to get there anytime soon. And hence, grassroots movements to support BDS is important, uh, in my personal view. But as you've pointed out, Palestinians can't wait. Absolutely. Palestinians... In, in the words of Amir Haas, uh, an Israeli journalist who writes to Haaretz, Palestinians are heroes for sustaining all this humiliation, pressure, occupation, killing and maiming for so long, longest occupation in history, and still wake up in the morning and, and go to work and marry and, and celebrate in a way, and waiting for a solution, waiting for the day when they wake up free independent in an independent and sovereign Palestinian state. But we all have a role to play because the West has been an active participant in the plot they they have suffered in a way. The West divided Palestine. We accepted Israel the way it is. We ignored the plot of the Palestinians for for too long. And it's time that we correct what's wrong time that the rest of the world, like with South Africa, like with any other occupation of East Timor and so on, that the rest of the world stand up and say, enough is enough. This conflict needs to end and the Palestinians deserve their their rights to live free in independent sovereign state. And I think it's achievable tomorrow. I mean, a lot of the those who like to muddle the water are saying, okay, well, there's a lot of mayhem in the Middle East now, we should wait further. There's no need to wait a single second more. Whatever happening in Iran and, and Syria and everywhere else, and Iran for that matter, and Iraq, it has no direct correlation with what's happening in Palestine. Palestine can be free tomorrow, regardless of what's happening in the rest of the world. We don't want to solve every conflict in the world before we solve the Palestinian issue. I think the Palestinian issue can be solved tomorrow. Everybody knows what the solution is. There's a consensus internationally about what the solution is. It's just the Israelis don't feel that uh, they have to give anything yet. And this is our role to actually send him a, a message that uh, uh, the rest of the world will not tolerate their actions and that the rest of the world wants Palestine to be free. How much should the Israeli left in that country be doing to help? Many, uh, including myself, or close observers of uh, the politics in Israel uh, will ask the question, what left? Uh, there's uh, nothing left of the left, if you want. The Israeli society, and I'm, uh, I've lived there for 27 years, uh, the Israeli society have been radicalized to an extent that they're blinded to any issue. The Palestinians for them are, are, are not something that they worry about. They're addicted to the occupation. 
and they don't have any regard to sort of the plight and the, the human suffering of the Palestinians, too, unfortunately. And I'm saying this not because sort of uh, I'm trying to exaggerate things and so on. I say this by looking at the surveys that Israel has done over the years, the Israeli government for this, or, or the media as well, about their attitude towards what's happening in Gaza, for example, where 85% are supportive of the uh, destruction of Gaza and the killing of people. And after the killing so many thousands, uh, those same people think that Israel didn't go too far. Now, if killing 2,400 people, five of them are children, destroying the, the whole enclave in there, in, in 51 days, and apparently there's tens of thousands of raids in there, is not going too far. This is a problem with this society. Now, uh, the labor wants to present itself as being the left, wants to present itself as the one who wants peace and so on. But if you look at the settlement building, if you look at the military actions, and you try to correlate that with which government is in place in Israel, you'll find that there's no correlation whatsoever. It doesn't make any difference if it's Labour, Likud, or anybody else for that matter is in charge. The Israelis are doing it. You can't just come and say, well, just if the Labour is elected again, some things will have changed. Well, the Labour government decided to build the apartheid wall. The Labour government built the nuclear facilities. The Labour government killed the people in, uh, in southern uh, Lebanon. The Labour government uh, attacked Gaza and, and uh, maintained the occupation of the West Bank. So it's a myth that uh, change of government in Israel will make any difference. And the average Israeli citizen needs to know that the rest of the world are not happy with what they're doing to the Palestinians, will not accept them as an equal member of the international community and want things to change. And unless this happens, I don't think we can see any movement in that regard. And hence, the role of those like us here in Australia and elsewhere is so important for this to happen in a way. Looking at other struggles over the years, particularly South Africa, there was always a grassroots opposition to the government. You're saying there's nothing in Israel. Well, I looked at the last election and I looked at uh, uh, who got elected and I looked at the platform and I look at there and say, okay, well, uh, where is the alternative solution? I mean, for example, peace with the Palestinians as an item for the election. You know, in every election, there's certain different topics that are being discussed and what is important was not. It came as number six in terms of priorities for the Israelis. So they are addicted to the occupation. Number six, you know, Palestinians are being killed on a daily basis. War in Gaza was only a few months old. People in Gaza are still sort of living in ruins. And peace with the Palestinians came uh, in terms of importance as number six for them. So you're thinking, well, are these people actually looking around? They live in their uh, own cities. They have enough money to travel overseas. They have GDP similar to Australia. And uh, why should they bother what's happening in Gaza or Ramallah or Jenin or anywhere else for that matter? It's not that I'm dismissing the left or whatever's left of it in there. There is Meretz, for example, who are a Zionist party, which basically argues that it is for interest of Israel and the Israelis and the Jews for that matter that there is peace. Obviously, there is a 13 um, representative out of 120 in the Knesset who are Arab members. 
Palestinians from, uh, who are citizens of Israel, who obviously oppose the occupation and, they, and want Israel to withdraw from the uh, Palestinian territories. So these people do exist. I'm not saying dismissing them. But I don't want to lump with those uh, people like uh, the Zionist party, which is uh, Livni and, uh, and Herzog, which, uh, which is representative of the labor. They are a small group who are hardly putting any uh, peaceful alternative, if you want, in there. I'll give you an example about the last election with uh, Avigdor Lieberman. Uh, he's not known for his uh, dovish uh, policies. Israel, before the last election, has increased the threshold to get into, into parliament. And uh, the polling was showing that he was going to not make the threshold. So he goes on media saying that if he's elected and became a minister, he would put a policy of chopping the heads of the Palestinians who, who uh, uh, dare to resist or advocate for Palestine. This gave him a boost in, in the poll and eventually got him elected with five members of Knesset. It's just an example about this society. So the, the one thing that got him elected is that he said that he will chop the heads of the Palestinians who advocate independence of Palestine. I just want to make this, and I repeat it specifically, to show the radicalization of that society. We know if we listen to the news, we don't hear about uh, Lieberman, but we hear about ISIS and chopping of heads. Uh, so um, this is the situation in, in Israel, unfortunately. When it comes to South Africa, I think that uh, while internal opposition needs to be maintained, and it's important uh, to uh, show that there's people who care and that uh, hold the government and its um, racist views uh, to account, I think it is international pressure in particular that made all the difference with South Africa. I mean, the ANC were there for many years before, but uh, their influence uh, was relatively limited, although it was substantial. But uh, what, what broke South Africa eventually is governments adhering to public pressure and starting imposing uh, sanctions uh, and boycott of South Africa. And that eventually sort of uh, the, the straw that broke the, uh, the camel's back, rather than sort of internal. I'm not dismissing any internal opposition. I'm just trying to say is that in South Africa, in my view, and in Palestine as well, it is the international pressure will eventually going to make all the difference. And that was Professor Bassam Daly, who's a member of the group Australian Palestinian Advocacy Network. And you are listening just to the very end of Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett. At 17 seconds after 8.15, on the clear, bright morning of August 6, 1945, an atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, Japan. August 6 and 9 mark 70 years since the U.S. atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which claimed more than 200,000 lives. Join the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, ICANN, for Australia's first ever screening of the extraordinary 1953 film Hiroshima. Thursday, August 6 at 6.30, Collide Theatre, Melbourne. Bookings at icanw.org.au. Proceeds support ICANN's work to ban and eliminate the 15,000 nuclear weapons that exist in the world today. ICANN is a 3CR supporter. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. 
All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. Just 25 bucks each. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. The Kurdish Workers' Party, otherwise known as the PKK, was established in 1984 to fight for the self-determination of Kurdish people in Turkey. It is supported by millions of Kurds and in recent times has played a crucial role in defending Kobani and Rojava against ISIS. Yet the Australian government named the PKK as a prescribed terrorist organisation in 2005 and it has remained on the list ever since. The listing comes up for review in August 2015. Australians for Kurdistan Committee in Melbourne is calling for the PKK to be delisted and are collecting endorsements. You can add yours by going to www.liftthebanonthepkk.org. Australians for Kurdistan Committee in Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. And that is all for me for today. I will be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Jonathan is here for Food Fight, Food Fight, and he will be here in just a moment. Bye for now.